it's what are the things that are important to you and that's a process and part of that for me was is it more important to fit in to these you know preconceived roles or is it more important to be who I am and for me that turned out to be the right route to be who I am. sat down to talk to Oliver Riger this week, I didn't know what angle to take um, with the conversation. There were a lot of things about, about Oliver that I knew, and we had never sat down and, and discussed these things. We'd messaged a little bit over social media, we're friends on Facebook, but I never had a, a one-on-one conversation with Oliver. I, I knew that Oliver loved books, loved reading. I, I knew that Oliver was in improv, but I never had a chance to sit down and hear Oliver's story. And it, I think it's a story, while it may not be specifically familiar to everyone or to most people, there are themes of Oliver's story, much like a great book, that everyone can take and learn valuable lessons from. This was one of the most rewarding conversations I've had since I've been briefly doing these podcast episodes. It's a timely conversation. It's a human conversation. And it's a conversation about finding yourself. It's a a conversation about finding who you are in an authentic way. And it's a conversation about the struggle to be accepted in a society that is sometimes not just closed off, but extremely hurtful. Um, Oliver's conversation with me over the course of this next hour uh, is a conversation that I think I'll remember for a long time. And we don't hone in on one aspect of Oliver's life necessarily, but we explore who Oliver is as a whole person, and and that includes the love of improv, that includes the love of books, um, that includes being both Jacksonians from birth. Um, Even though Oliver has has gotten out of Jackson and come back, I I have yet to leave Jackson. I am still here uh, 43 years straight, but Oliver and I are both alums of JCM, and there is so much common ground that we share that I don't think I realized that we shared until we sat down and had this conversation. And I hope you will listen to the entirety of the conversation. Again, I think there is so much value in Oliver's story. There is so much value in Oliver's words. And it was truly an honor and a privilege to sit down and listen to Oliver tell his story. So I hope you enjoy this episode of The Stories We Tell with Oliver Riger.
I graduated from Austin P with a uh, music degree. Um, and then I went to Memphis and I worked at a book, I worked at Borders Books and Music for four years. Um, and then no judgment here, please. But I watched, uh, I don't know, four or five seasons of Scrubs and thought, well, I should go into the medical field okay. so well, as no, you do. Are you saying no judgment because you made a life altering <laughs> decision based on Scrubs or because judgment watching scrubs because i love well, scrubs. that's a great show no okay, no okay, okay. Good, <laughs> if you judge good. me for that then i <laughs> no, we're I just gonna have to find something else to talk about <laughs> i absolutely will not judge you for scrubs i love scrubs <laughs> so was the reality of working in the healthcare profession like scrubs you know there's some aspects of it that are honestly um i laugh at myself for going f- because i was a fan of that show but there are aspects in terms of just the natural ludicrousness of things that you have to do to take care of people when they're having life altering illnesses or whatever, sure. you know? So were you, were, right. Let me ask you this about scrubs. Were you, were you a JD fan? Were you a Turk fan? Were you a, were you just a fan of everybody? Yeah. I think I related most to JD because I am also an anxious person by nature. Um, a little neurotic, definitely wanting somebody somewhere to tell me I'm doing a great job. <laughs> Like, please. <laughs> so what field of nursing did you did you work in? I wanted to go into psych nursing. That was my goal. Um, and on the advice of an instructor in, in the nursing program, I went, well, okay, partly on the advice of a, an instructor in the nursing program, and partly because the hospital paid for my nursing degree. I had to go work there for a few years. Um, so I got a job uh, on B6, which is the neurology floor. Mm. And I worked in acute care, neuro, uh, neurosurgery, and neurological care. And then I worked in the ICU there for so a total of four years. Um, was ICU tough? Yes. I mean, that's quite <laughs> a dumb question. Well, it's, <laughs> you're no. Dealing it's trauma, <laughs> you're dealing with a lot of trauma in one area. but Yeah, it was tough in a variety of ways. Um, it's tough because it's intense. It's right there in the name, intensive. Um, it's, it is intensive care. I mean, so, but on the other hand, like I'm a very, despite being a little disorganized, I'm a very detail oriented person. Um, and I liked that I could, you know, get to know my patients in terms of what's going on with them. Um, know exactly. It's, it's a, it's just a different style of nursing than like acute care bedside nursing. And then when did you transition into hospice care? Was it after ICU? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I was looking to get out of the hospital um, and trying to explore some other options. At that time, I still thought, I don't know. I knew somebody that was working in hospice and I knew of a job opening and I applied for it um, and got the job. And it is such a different... Here's what I was struggling with working in the ICU is um, our, our culture really values being alive regardless of quality of life. That is paramount somehow. And I felt like sometimes what I thought was important in terms of patient care, and it's not up to me for individual patients, but, you know, sometimes I felt like we were working at odds with um, humanity, maybe. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, but I think that's fascinating. I mean, I think that's that's something that, that people don't want to talk because you're right. There is such a value. I'm going to put value in quotes. There's such a value placed on being alive, regardless of whatever circumstances that person mm-hmm. who is alive is going to face or has faced or is facing. Mm-hmm. It's all about them, quote unquote, being a living. Right, right. And that's... There are so many layers to where that comes from. I, it's, I know it's hard to let go of people. It's scary. We as a culture don't talk about death a lot. So when it does come up, it's like this great unknown. How do you deal with it? Um, and I wanted to work in a field that was making that process easier rather than... Um, I guess valuing doing absolutely anything to maintain life, even if it was painful and didn't have dignity and didn't alleviate 
you know, discomfort. I, I wanted to focus on quality of life rather than quantity. So, in working with patients in hospice, did mm-hmm. you find a lot of common characteristics between them when they are at that stage of of life, or you know, or were they at that point medicated so much that? They probably they were in and out, or it depends. How did they they view where they were along this journey? Um, It depended a lot um, on how long I think maybe they'd had to get used to the idea. Um, You can qualify for hospice. I I speak out of turn. It's been several years since I've worked in hospice, but um, if you have a a diagnosis that a diagnosis that um, clinically could be expected to lead to death within six months. So a lot of the times people who were at that point just choosing not to continue treating a a cancer that was going to be fatal, um, oftentimes they would come into hospice and start to feel better because they're not having those aggressive treatments that can be rough on your body or just because we're paying attention to pain and other symptom control instead of just on curative stuff. Um, And it was interesting. Like it was, it was a whole different ball field because ball field, ball game. Either way. I'm not great at metaphors. Everybody knows what we're talking about. Thank you. It was, um, (laughs) it was, it was, it felt, I don't know how to say this. It felt more in line with my values, uh, not not religious values, like I don't, the things that I value as a person, to be lending my time and energy to trying to keep people comfortable and in their home and with their family and um, focusing on dignity and helping them be as independent as they're going to be able to be during that time and I think that speaks, I think that's, there's a, you mentioned metaphor. I think there's a larger metaphor in that is that our society focuses so much on what the collective thinks is quote unquote right rather than the individual and what they need at that time. Right. And I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what I, what I think I hear you saying is that your role as a hospice nurse was more about, like you said, comfort and quality of life rather than maybe healing and that might be too strong of a word or, or right. working toward this like we're gonna we're gonna right yeah get this you know right because n- at, none of the goals are curative at that right. point you're no longer doing things because they will extend life you're doing things because they will either provide comfort or dignity or it's symptom control basically yeah it's interesting you mentioned your personal values because I, I want to I want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this idea of dignity, mm-hmm. of living a life that that in that moment is true and in in that in that moment is real, even though mm-hmm. the collective society may think something else is is better. Yeah, absolutely. That. So what are the what are the values personally that you can? mentioned them dignity and what are, what are some of those other personal values yeah um compassion is a big one for me um authenticity um i have i'm 46 years old i have spent huge portions of my life trying to understand myself and a lot of that time was spent fighting against my own fear of what I thought I understood about myself. Um, Oftentimes what I was understanding about myself did not mesh with societal expectations. And I was, that's scary. That's scary when you are told a person born in a feminine body who wants to be masculine is bad. That's something that's gross or offensive or predatory in some way and then you think that that is that is me that's terrifying so you have to be willing to say okay who am I which bits of the what's why is that scary to me 
Is it because of things that I'm hearing from society? Is it because I'm scared of what, you know, learning to be who I am despite noise from outside and from all those little grooves that are cut through like the record of my psyche from, from, you know, repeatedly being exposed to other people's opinions about things. That is, that's, that's a, a hurdle. <laughs> at, at what point as you were, as you were growing up, was, was it a, a constant feeling of like, this is something that I know to be true for my, for me. Mm-hmm. And, ha- and, and I don't, I'm not sure what, I should do with this or or was it was it more of like um something that wasn't as acute more of just a general feeling for a while I think when I was younger when I was very young I um I, for lack of a better word felt boyish I don't know how else to describe that you know I identified with my boy cousins and um a little bit. I was a really big He-Man fan, so I, was, <laughs> I loved He-Man. I had, I, I had all of the, the He-Man. I, my cousins did, and I would play with them. I was so into that show, and we had, um, you know, the knife sharpeners that look like little swords. Mm-hmm. And I would put it down the back of my shirt and like pull it out and wave it in the air, like for by the power of Grey School. Anyway, <laughs> I have a tape recording of me doing I, I by the power of Grey School. I have it, but I couldn't say uh-huh. R, so my mom would constantly play that even as a teenager. I was like, yeah, turn it off. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so I was okay. Everybody's a little blindsided by puberty let's just be frank but I was uh super put out because (laughs) my body decided to go in in a different direction from we had creative differences Um, so (laughs) I was um that was a deal (laughs) is that the first time you use the term creative differences because like that that's perfect it's hilarious it's great it's funny I actually bizarrely I don't think I've ever said creative differences and I've said it twice today Trademark it for this. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, <laughs> and I don't mean to interrupt you. No, you're is, fine. Is that sort of when, like, for lack of a better term, like, is that when the rubber met the road, where you're like, okay, like this is happening mm-hmm. to my body, right? But, but th- this is not who I am, right? It's it's sort of weird because that's also when societal expectations for how you're going to behave ramp up, and. Um, it's also, you know, it's junior high, other people are having crushes, I'm feeling awkward every time, you know, like, I'm like, I'm, it's the early, late 80s, early 90s in Jackson, Tennessee, in addition to feeling out of, out of place in my body, I'm also like, am I into other girls that you know at the time I was a girl <laughs> um for or in a girl's body anyway um you know like what if that what if people figure that out I'm not even sure I figured that out what if other people figure that out I should just not make eye contact with anybody <laughs> and that's a recipe for disaster <laughs> in, in, late, in the late 80s the junior high culture and I'm not saying it's improved that much but you're talking like school dances and and you know yeah where I mean like I, I never think, attended one of those. I think people are more aware now of like sort of not not problems, but like, hey, we need to like not just assume that everybody's going to pair up. Like, we need mm-hmm. to treat this with a little more thought mm-hmm. and maybe compassion. So, but in the late eighties, man, it was just like let's play some boys to men and see how close. People. And I'm not saying that that was like the goal of administration. That was just the culture of those. <laughs> right, of right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. And nothing bad about boys to men. No, no, no. I love, I love boys to men. Um, so when you were when you were feeling those things, obviously there's probably no like. Was there anybody that you could go to with that, or you just had to internalize all of it? Yeah, and I I don't know if there would have been anybody I could have gone to. I was not aware of anybody. Um, and it's interesting because, like, who knows? Like, my parents are wonderful, supportive people. Um, but also that was, I was about to say 20 years ago, but it was, it was 40 years, <laughs> 30, I, I don't know. It was a long time ago. <laughs> I'm a little iffy on how long ago the 90s were, 
that's fine. Um, <laughs> they feel like yesterday, but they were not. Really do. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, they, I've, I suspect, especially for my mom, that there was, you know, some discomfort subconsciously. I don't think it was anything she was trying to do. I think there was some discomfort in terms of just, like, why is my oldest uh, girl kid think she's a boy? <laughs> and, and But having said that, people grow and develop and learn, and my mom is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I'll just put that out there. Um, so I, but I, like in terms of, I didn't know of any, um, like people at school I could talk to. Um, I think the overwhelming feeling that I had at that time was fear, fear that I would turn out to be like you, I would hear other students talk about, oh, that teacher, she's gay. She's probably looking at you, you know? And so I was like. Oh, that's, you know, that's clearly a bad thing. Yeah, and I'm going to avoid then, that teacher because... Like, none of that, like, the right. connotation of that was always negative, right? Right. Like, they were gay. Even, mm-hmm. like, oh, well, you know, she's checking you out. And, and that wasn't mm-hmm. a Right, it was, just like it was, it was, yeah, it was assumed to be predatory, um, which is recurring theme because <laughs> transgender people are assumed to be predatory. I'm very familiar with how uh, exhausting that particular track on this record is <laughs> you're doing some music analogy really i know I, what's happening with me right now is that so it throughout high school which which regardless of uh, of how any teenager's feeling they're mm-hmm. they're for for um heterosexual transgender how much Everybody. Whatever it is, the chemicals are going wild at that point. So I can't imagine yes. how much hard, it, along with all of those things, you're also really internalizing and thinking about, and I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth by saying struggling, mm. but, you know, trying to figure all of these it things out. It was a struggle. I was internalizing a lot of shame and just self-loathing. And that's why... It was, it was, it came at a good time in my life to, um, when the schools consolidated and I went to JCM because there was a level of anonymity because it was such a big school. It was a more, more diverse crowd. People were not fixated on how I was different from the main crowd. I was just another person there doing my own thing, struggling with my own stru- struggles, struggling with my own struggles, but, um, you know, also not the only person doing that you know did you were there to your knowledge because i'm sure people weren't weren't just like talking about this out loud were there any other students who you might have thought like hey maybe maybe this is someone i could talk to if i could broach figure out a way to broach the subject because maybe they're struggling with this as well or maybe not i don't think so i think that by the time i was in high school and this was a theme through my 20s too I was going to fake it until I make it with this whole being a woman thing, <laughs> like, you know. That's, when, that's, when you say fake it till you make it, do you mean you were thinking at some point this is going to, for lack of a better term, like straighten itself out? Yeah. I mean, I hate to like put it like that, but in your no, mind, that is, that, is that sort of how you were thinking? I think so. I was like, I, I'm clearly not getting something here. I don't understand how to do this, but I can... I can see that it helps to brush your hair and, um, you know, it's, I can't think of a single thing that you do to be a woman now. I'm at a loss. <laughs> when you were saying you were going to fake it till you make it, when you were doing those things, let's say brush mm-hmm. your hair or whatever it is, right, right. did it feel like foreign or like this isn't who I am? It, like it, I'm doing this, but this isn't, this isn't me. Yeah, no, it, it felt like um, faking it. It felt like I was making an effort to, to do a thing that I knew I was supposed to be doing. Um, I, I feel like anybody listening to this right now is trying to visualize my hair, which must be deranged. <laughs> this person clearly does not brush, brush their hair, which is true. I don't even own a hairbrush. <laughs> um, anyway, but yeah, I like in my 20s, I, I went through a stage where I wore skirts all the time. I was, I was like, I, I can do this. I'm 100% sure I can do this, you know, and until at a certain point, 
much later, I was like, I don't have to do that. <laughs> like, I could just be me. That'd be fine too. <laughs> and like as much as I, I want to get to that point of like whenever you, because I'm sure that was such a relief mm-hmm. when you finally were able just to be like, fuck, like, fuck this. This, mm-hmm. is, I'm, I, this is who I am. Right. Were there days when you were still trying to fake it until you made it that mm-hmm. you, you kind of forgot? Like as in like, I'm not like it just or was it a constant presence in your mind of like this is not it was there were times when it was more comfortable than others um I guess uh, the teen years were rough and then I went to college and that was um it had its own set of issues which were unrelated to my gender specifically I would say um anyway uh but the I think that like there was a time in my 20s when I was like I got used to this was the stage where I was wearing skirts a lot and I was it's like I was I even you know I I would go through stages where for months on end I would wear makeup most days um you know just like it felt a little weird, a little optional, but optional in terms of my preferences, not optional in terms of society. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you remember the first time you talked to somebody? That, were you were you either worked up the courage or you just finally got to a point where you're like, I just got, I have to, I need to get this out somehow and, and tell someone. Do you remember that conversation and who it was and if it helped or didn't help? I am, yeah, I think that, honestly, I think, if I'm remembering right, um, so when I was working at the library, after I left hospice nursing, I went to work at Jackson Massing County General Library in the teen room, um, and part of that job is reading YA literature, um, so that you know the collection, you can recommend books, you can talk about the books with the, um, the patrons, and, um, so I would, you know, set reading goals and try to read. And some, some of them are great. Some of them are a little iffy. Um, but one of the ones that I read was about a, a trans, a non-binary transgender child or teenager. Um, and it was weird as I was reading. I just picked it up because it was one of the new releases. And as I was reading it, and this character was talking about how there are days where they felt like a guy and there were days when they felt you know feminine and you know it was I remember reading that and being like previously somehow my entire concept of transgender was I think probably the big scary image that is projected onto everybody's mind around here it had never occurred to me somehow that oh and also <laughs> from reading the world according to garb when i was a teenager we'll talk about that because i do believe he has been a champion mm-hmm. for for transgender people long before yeah I'd, you know it was in the news. exactly i'd completely forgotten about that but i did read that book um a couple of times when i was a teenager um so i thought i, th- I think i thought transgender people could be transgender women um, or or there's just this uh, other idea that is too scary to explore of scary transgender people. You know, people talk about that. It's it's a thing. So, um, so then I'm reading this book with a character who is expressing a lot of the same things I'm feeling. And I, like the, li- <laughs> the little protective shame voices in my head said, do not let anybody know you're reading this book. And keep that to ourselves. So I, I, I finished the book because you know, f- not finish a book. Exactly. I've actually learned to, to learn to finish, not finish books. But anyway, I finished that one, put it back on the shelf, rated it on my Goodreads, or maybe I didn't. I don't know. But went on with my life. Um, How old were you when you read that? The I would have been the YA book in the hospital. Yeah, or at the library. Um, I would have been late 30s early 40s probably early 40s so 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 this is something that for literally decades like your whole like you you had just internal was that Mm -hmm. getting that book Mm -hmm. 
like how much of it was that was there such a relief where you're like oh it was yeah it was a combination of i can see myself here and also oh no <laughs> i can see right. i remember one of my coworkers just like casually being like what are you reading and i was like <laughs> nothing okay, not a thing no, not there. reading anything <laughs> um look over there squirrel <laughs> <laughs> um because it felt too dangerous not in a like rational i might be accosted for this but just as in i'm not ready to even talk about this myself the ideas in there haven't settled themselves in a way that I feel comfortable or safe or familiar with. So right now this is scary. And, and not to, because I do think this goes along with what we're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. And without even diving into like the local, the local stuff, like the libraries there or the books that were trying to be banned and the, mm -hmm. and, you know, the article in the Jackson post a couple weeks ago, blah, 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 whatever. I think there are, there's just a narrative out there generally state mm -hmm. level and in, in certain states around the country that they want to they want to get rid of books like that right okay so that being said i think because a lot of people who want to get rid of books like that mm -hmm. have no idea of the value they provide right to someone who might just have been internalizing something like this for years right because there would have been no other i mean other than having to come out and talk to somebody who was also experiencing that there would mm -hmm. have been no way you could have gotten that right sense of um i don't know if belonging is the right word or or some way to see just oh being God. seen being able to see myself and say wait a minute that makes that makes a lot of sense like that's that's how i've been feeling like my whole life and you know it's like I would be, it t like I said, it, it, I think this was in my late 30s because I worked there for seven years and this, I think I read that book in the first year that I've worked there. And over time, you know, I read widely. I tried to read a variety of genres, a variety of um, protagonists um, just to get, I wanted to be able to recommend a book to whoever walked in. Um, and so I, I read other narratives fiction and nonfiction, with transgender characters and i watched some youtube videos because i went searching for them you know um and it felt scary at first and the more that i watched and the more that i read the more i was like maybe this isn't scary maybe this is or maybe it's scary because of external voices but this being me that feels freeing like i don't feel like i'm have to fake anything to be me i don't i just have to be me that has like i can feel the relief for you even hearing that like when you finally realize something like this mm -hmm. is who i can be and i've been struggling or internalizing mm -hmm. for so long but this is it and i like okay like huh, collective just right breath yeah and that's what like people who know me have said that they can see the relief, they can see the joy, they can, my mom said, I'm sorry, um, my mom has pointed out, she, has, she said, you know, you were so angry all the time when you were a teenager, you know, and it's like, she's like, you, you're so different now, you're so happy. And Was there a protagonist in any book that you read that you were like, man, I really identify, or, or a certain book out of all those books that you read, or was it, was it just more of, reading each one and becoming more and more familiar with that. I think, yeah, I think it was more, it's, I can't think of anybody specifically that I, um, identified with. It was more just like exposing myself to the concepts until it wasn't so terrifying so that I could, you know, approach the ideas within myself. Um, you know, and it's not, exploring who you are is a is a big it's not something just transgender people do it's it's a process for everybody you know what are the things that you value you know like is it being honest is it being kind to other people is it having enough alone time that you don't scream at strangers at Kroger you know whatever it is what are the things that are important to you 
And that's a process. And part of that for me was, is it more important to fit in to these, you know, preconceived roles or is it more important to be who I am? And for me, that turned out to be the right, the right route to be who I am. I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. Honestly. Then I want to get into books because I'm like yeah. dying to talk to you about books, right? Um, so at who, who, how was the acceptance or when you started to tell your friends, mm-hmm. I'm sure in family, mm-hmm. was that a nerve wracking process and it got easier the more you did it? And how did that end up uh, developing? It was, it was really nerve wracking. I want to say that um, the first person I told was actually a coworker at the library who um, was, I don't, it wasn't even a person I knew super well at the time. I think that made it less scary to some extent. Mm-hmm. And I could tell just from other things that this person had said that I was, this was a fairly safe bet. Um, and it went fine. And over time, I told other people, I told my sister, I told my therapist, (laughs) you know, I told my parents and it's like every time I was like, those voices are so loud in in your head when you're trying to do that, you know, you're, you're going to be, they're not going to accept you. They're going to be grossed out. They're going to think you're predatory. They're going to think whatever. Um, They're going to laugh at you and think that you are just making this up for attention or whatever. And I've been so lucky. I've not dealt with that with the people who matter sure. in my life, you know. I mean, there have been some acquaintances who um, have had less than ideal reactions, but that is a them issue, <laughs> you sure, know. Yeah. It's <laughs> so well, that, that has to be each time you probably told someone and then you realize that, like, you, you got that acceptance or even probably, a, you know, I'm sure as a parent myself, I'm sure that your parents were probably happy that you, that you were mm-hmm. finally who you. Yeah. That's, to be. that's been the vibe I've gotten from them is just, they want me to be happy and safe and healthy and like, what else can a parent want for a kid? Right. right? Yeah. Like it's it. like, and, and you know, I mean, there are people who don't get that from their parents yeah. when they come out and that is a tragedy. I have been so lucky because in, in, in the last, the last question I have, and you don't have to go into, to any detail, but I do think it's important to acknowledge because there's a lot of noise. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of noise locally, Mm -hmm. even if, even in our mayoral election, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of noise and there's a lot of noise at the state level. Is it hard to tune that out? Is it something you even want to tune out? And like, I know you said something about like, I do think you value decency and being Mm -hmm. a good person Mm -hmm. is it is it hard not to get really angry about these narratives (laughs) that are out there yes absolutely it's um that is not a brief question okay so there's there's about 15 levels of stuff we're about to wade through here i'll try to keep it short um first of all I think everybody struggles a little bit with keeping their own behaviors in line with their values that's a lifelong thing And that's just a thing. And it is hard. It's so hard sometimes for me. Like I, I, I have to stop and notice, okay, I feel yucky when I go read comments on Facebook. This is not okay. This is, this makes me feel awful. It's probably not doing any good to say, hey, that's a a really um, not very nuanced take. And frankly, it's hurtful (laughs) and particularly when people respond to it with well you're just an ugly woman Mm -hmm. like okay well thanks that's great um but that's it's just that's not a i feel like if you're not if you you personally are not or if you don't know anybody who is um gay or transgender or whatever then it may not be immediately obvious how important pride events are it's not we're not having these to say look how special we are we're having these to say here's an opportunity where i can not have to worry you know i can hang out with people who are there because they accept me for who they are and we can celebrate being accepted um and that that is a family event because being accepted 
and being who you are is something that you share with your family. Like, I mean, I have, when I worked at the library, I would see library teens there and they'd be like, you know, that moment of eye contact where they're like, I can trust you. You know, if I need to talk or just share that I'm having a hard time with something, I can trust that you will not judge me for just some aspect of myself. Not my lifestyle, myself, mm-hmm. who I am as a person. <laughs> um, and that's and a difference. I, like, speak to that a little bit too, because, it, you know, lifestyle is thrown around a lot. And I think I probably am throwing it around too. The difference in lifestyle and yeah, being who my, you are. my lifestyle is that I am, I don't know, roughly middle class ish. Um, I drive a Prius, kind of like a granny. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't run red lights. I'm chaotic, or not chaotic. I'm a lawful good, probably. Um, stop and stop, <laughs> yeah, price. 100%. I am a little old man, and I like to go to bed by 9.30. That's my lifestyle. Who I am is a transgender man. That's, that's who you are. That's my identity, and I don't mean identity as in I identify as a helicopter or whatever that dumb thing is that people say I just mean this is who I am like it's bizarre to me I it would never occur to me to tell somebody else you say you're this but I feel like I know you better than you do (laughs) it's amazing the liberties (laughs) that people take in deciding Mm -hmm. who is what and who is allowed to say who they are mm-hmm. right and and, and right. It's, it's an easy thing to do because it's probably something it's a privilege that they've never had to recognize right right who they are is never been pushed back against right right precisely mm-hmm. back to your original question yes it is uh, for instance with the local mayoral debate like it's or not debate but race it's tough because it feels like there's more at stake than potholes or <laughs> um, potholes, which uh, or incidentally, trash. yeah, Pothole exactly. And potholes and trash. And never mind the statistics. Anyway. <laughs> Who needs data? <laughs> who needs data? Data is silly. <laughs> Let's talk to 100 people who I already know like me. Anyway, okay, I'm digressing. <laughs> but this, it is, but you're right, because the, because the bigger issue, and it has been all along, and I don't want to make this about a, a specific campaign necessarily, but mm-hmm. it is worth talking about, because when you are running for the office to represent and to lead an entire community, yes. you have to be aware that mm-hmm. that community right. contains people. People right that may not think the same way you do right and even if you say oh, i love everybody if you also say in the same breath and if you want to be a, a gross middle-aged man who prances around in women's laundry you know that that is not a loving statement no. <laughs> and you know regardless i i don't have a clue how mayor conger feels about transgender people I don't know. I've never talked to him about it. And I appreciate the fact that he doesn't feel compelled to share that. (laughs) I think that's what's important. The only thing that I've heard Mayor Conger say is Jackson is a place for everyone. Yes. I'm a mayor for everyone. Mm -hmm. And and that's including probably Mm -hmm. some of the the people who have the bigoted mindsets Mm -hmm. who are spewing a lot of hate. They're Jacksonians, too. They're Jacksonians, too. They pay taxes. Yes. They go to work. They do... But you know what? So do I. I work full-time in Jackson. I volunteer. I attend local events. I support local businesses. I pay taxes. They're Jackson. I'm Jackson. We're all part of Jackson. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? and, it, and I think even for me, sometimes I struggle with even considering them to be part of ja- and, and that's something that I have to always you know, keep in my mind. Yeah. Like they, they are also part of this community as well and right. you know so man i don't want to take up too much of my headspace with them especially with this <laughs> right. because i do believe this is such a beautiful story you you mentioned you worked at borders 
I did, yeah. Bookstore and then the library. All mm-hmm. right, so you've got a love of books. I don't ever read. No, I'm just kidding. Clearly, I, I clearly. love books. Okay. Right. <laughs> was, it, was that was reading something that you do, you did for as early as you can remember? Oh yeah. W- oh, was goodness. it something you found comfort in during this time mm-hmm. growing up as well? Absolutely. I disappear into another story. I find characters that I related to. I would be those characters. I. You know, in my mind, I, my, and also sometimes, okay, running around with a toy sword, you know. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. So reading in high school, did you have a favorite book? I was in high school. I discovered and started reading Terry Pratchett. Okay. And I read every one of them as they came out. Do you know who Terry Pratchett I is? Terry I Pratchett. Like I did just now. I do not know who Terry Pratchett is. <laughs> you don't ever have to. Okay. Uh, I don't pretend. know why. It's just, it's just like an hour. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Terry Pratchett. No, I no yeah. Idea. I couldn't tell. It was like a sort of <laughs> non-committal, like, yeah, yeah uh, no. but I've done that before myself. That's no judgment. Yeah. So Terry Pratchett is, or was, he passed away mm, six or seven years ago, I guess. Um, a English writer of, fantasy that was really like satire and social commentary in the guise of fantasy Mm -hmm. brilliant stuff absolutely genius and hilarious and um so my dad uh just retired a couple years ago but he taught uh biology and human amp at jackson state for 30 something years um and one of his students had brought him this paperback called equal rights which was interestingly about a um, a young seventh son of a seventh son who turned out to be a seventh daughter, um, wow. but was they found that out after the wizard who was passing away had bequeathed his um, uh, magical staff and therefore his powers. So her thing growing up is, am I a wizard? Am I a witch? Like. Equal rights. It's a pun. You see, R I T. Yes, yeah, there you go. There you go. So, and she wants to go to the wizard school, and they're like, "You can't. You're a girl." Anyway, I read that book. So I still have my copy. I don't. It's. I think it's held together just with like bits of paper dust and hopes at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I read that book so many times. I had bits of it memorized, and I would like wake up in the morning, and it would be just like tucked in the bed with me because I'd fall asleep reading it. Um, Is there a comfort? Because I've got a, okay, so I've got a book that I read all the time every year, mm-hmm. and it's like every time I read it, I I know I know the cadence, I know the rhythm mm-hmm. of the words, I know mm-hmm. what scenes are on what page, and it's like I can fall into it mm-hmm. and almost feel like I'm in a like it. Mm-hmm. The best way I can describe it is like I'm in a familiar city. Yes, yeah. And so was that how that book was for you? That's exactly how it was. I knew the characters, I knew the situations, I knew. I felt like I was making that journey with them over and over again, and um, it, it it felt like a, a world I was comfortable existing in. When's the last time you read it? You know, it's been a while since I've read that specific book. I read it so many times as a teenager, and then and I brought it to college with me, and I read it in college several times, and I think... At some point, I stopped reading it. It's probably do a revisit. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see like what that feels like now. Mm-hmm. You know, reading it. Uh, what about it, as a young adult or in adulthood? Were there? Did you have a favorite book? Were there were there books that really stood out to you? Um, see, other authors I read a lot um, in my teen and young adult years. Um, I read John Irving, like you said. Or as you mentioned, um, did you have a favorite Irving novel? Was it Garp or? I loved that one, but I think maybe a prayer for Owen Meany. Mm-hmm. That book That's is the first one I read fantastic. Yeah, um, I read a lot of Tom Robbins. Um, let me think what else. When I worked at um, Borders, they had a a thing they wanted their booksellers to be well read, so we could. Um, They'd give us a little card um, store credit, um, which was fair because they did not pay us well at all. (laughs) (laughs) They expected us. It's a cool job, so we're not going to pay you. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, so is basically a way of, I guess, making sure that we spend a bit of our paycheck there. Um, I can say that about them because the company doesn't exist anymore. There you go. Talk all <laughs> um, the shit you want. <laughs> yeah, so, but also you could check out books as long as you brought them back in sellable condition. Um, and so I read, a, 
I read a lot of classics mm-hmm. doing that. Um, I guess maybe I had time to read. I don't know. All right, I got to so. ask because it's my it's my favorite book, and sometimes I'm embarrassed to say that I read this book every year because I I can understand even when I'm reading it mm-hmm. that some people probably frown upon this like it's it, you know it, it, it might not be as highbrow and I know it's not highbrow I know it's not a complex read I think there are so many themes that go way deeper than what high school English teachers teach but The Great Gatsby is mm. a book that I read every year literally every year I, I read that when I was in high school that's, it, but it's that's been thing. like they shouldn't like, you, like they should not read that in high school right because like it's mm. there is such a like you talk about trying to figure out who you are and trying to get mm-hmm. to this place where you're finally there and can like exhale like that's that. that book but it's all obviously set in the 20s mm-hmm. and it's in like Fitzgerald boils it down to this Gatsby needing to be with this woman days and it's the concept sounds silly on the surface but that man I, I'm telling you the layers to that, at least in my mm-hmm. opinion, are like, mm-hmm. oh, I, that's the book that I go to. And I'm like, every time I read it, it's that familiarity. That I'm like, yeah, oh, I totally okay. get it. Now, and so when you mentioned classics, like, that's that's what pops in mind. I, I went through a Hemingway fan. I'm not, I just wasn't a big Hemingway fan. Though. Yeah, I, I went through a Steinbeck phase. My girlfriend's reading East of Eden right now, which I really enjoyed when I read it a few years ago. Yeah, I was, I was all about... Um, of Mice and Men and The Red Pony and that, that short story that's in every like high school literature book. Okay. Um, Not The Pearl. No, well, that uh, one too, yeah. The Pearl's always in The in Pearl's always school. in there, but there's one, I want to say it's called like, I don't know, but it's this kid and he, something happens. He, um, does he kill somebody on accident? He has to leave. His, novel, probably, probably he probably kills somebody. Um, but he has to leave, and he hurts his leg, and it gets infected. And I, I, while I cannot remember the title of this book, I know I read it or this it, the short story. I just I was all about like Steinbeck can can grasp a moment and wring every bit of depressing sadness yeah, out can. of it. <laughs> do, do you miss working around books? Uh, yeah, I think what I miss about it is. Um, it just I, I loved at the library when someone would come in and say, I don't know what I want to read. It was like, Detective Oliver to the rescue. Now is what's, my chance. What's like, the last thing you read? You don't read much. What's the last thing you watched on TV? What's your favorite movie? What are you into? You know, it's like matching people with a book. Oh, that's the best feeling. <laughs> I, I want to talk, and, and I do want to, <laughs> to bring this back to Jackson and specifics, too, because I mm. think our library is something that is underappreciated mm, uh, here. And the reason I say that is because I went through a phase where I was just going to order books off Amazon because I wanted to keep them. And then I, mm. I was buying them from a local bookstore because I do think that's important, too. Though, I do, too. Right? So I, oh, yeah. I, you know, I wanted to balance that. But then my girlfriend's like, why are you buying these books? She's like, I just check them out the library. I was like, you know what? I'm going to start doing that. And so I started going back to the library about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why haven't I been doing this the whole mm-hmm. time? Because they, they have the contemporary stuff. Obviously, they have the classics. Like, it's, And there's something about being in a library. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So I think, can you, like, I don't want to say promote, because I know you don't work there anymore. But, like, what is the value of I mean, of I still like that, that. I 100% promote the library, um, even though I don't work there anymore. The value, there's a lot of values. First of all, any bookstore is at the, I say this with the understanding that, you know, people have varying levels of personal values regarding what they, like, what, do they value freedom of speech? Do they value, you know, I'm going to, whatever. But any bookstore is going to be, you know what, I'm going to approach this from a different direction. Okay. Libraries, because it's a commonly owned resource, everybody's got a voice for what goes into it. I like that. Um, it's taxpayer funded, right? Yeah, exactly. Right, so everybody should have representation there. Right, yeah. So if you want to read about this or that or whatever, 
feel like I'm a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to make a Seinfeld reference about when you worked at Borders. Like, as long as you bring it back in good shape. And also, as long as you don't take it in the bathroom. Yes. Remember that episode? Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay, yes. So. And it's kind of funny because when I started working at the library, everybody was like, you wash your hands a lot. And I was like, every one of these books has been in somebody's bathroom. <laughs> If you want to edit that part out, I totally no, understand. It's kind of stuff. It's kind of <laughs> but now people are going to be like, I don't know if I want to check out the library. Go to the library, get you a Clorox wipe, and read the book. <laughs> it's fine. Um, and also, they have a lot of e-resources, right, frankly. Um, yeah, it's um, you can go in, and it doesn't matter if what you're reading is the most popular thing or whatever. They're going to find a way for you to access it. And, you know, uh, within reason. I mean, because it is commonly owned money, it's also you have to be fiscally responsible with it. Mm -hmm. If you go in and uh, request a $900 textbook, you may be on your own with that. Sure. But, <laughs> you know, I That's mean, you you can come in and say, you know, I'm, I'm really into mollusks. Do we have any books about mollusks? And first of all, they probably do. <laughs> and second of all, if they don't, they're going to either interlibrary loan it or buy a copy or get you e you know, e-access to it or to the best of their ability, you know, people sitting at that front desk or working in the library aren't, um, like they're, they're the goal of library. The goal of the library is to help people access literary materials and entertainment stuff. And it's not to represent a specific point of view. It's just to, have knowledge and information out there for you how you know obviously books are sort of have been thread throughout this whole conversation mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways and they played an important role in your life obviously you know how does do you think your story plays out the same way had you not had access to a book like that i've wondered that before i don't know um i know it's hypothetical it is hypothetical um which is fine. I, I like a good hypothetical. But also, it's so hard to imagine like all the what ifs. Would I have figured it out from encountering TVs or movies or maybe, maybe not. Maybe it would have been a less comfortable thing. Um, probably. So at some point, I, I always joke that turning 40 was the best thing I ever did because something in my brain flipped and I was like I'm 40 and I don't have to be somebody else's version of me anymore like I can be who I am and I can start thinking about am I doing this because this is what everybody expects me to do or am I doing this because it's in line with what I think is the right thing to do and um it can make for some slower decision making because sometimes I have to figure out what I think is the right <laughs> thing to do. But also it feels a lot more authentic. So that, that works for me. I, I don't know that there's a greater personal freedom than owning your authentic self, what, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I think everyone, if they're honest, has their, has their own story of either struggling with who their authentic self is or getting to the point where they they are ready to own that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think growing up in a, a fundamentally religious environment, mm -hmm. at some point I had to decide, is that who I am? And it wasn't. And I struggled with that for a long time. Mm -hmm. and, and, and breaking out of that was a literally, it took a decade and there was, there was a lot of trauma and a lot of guilt and a lot right. of, a lot of things attached to it. Um, mm -hmm. and in no way am I comparing the two situations cause they're, they're vastly there are different, a lot of comparisons though. I mean, yeah. that thing where you, you have to be honest with yourself about something that all of your life, the narrative has been, if you come down on the wrong side of this, you're bad, you're a bad person for whatever reason. So it is, scary to take a moment and or take years and like be honest about how you actually feel have you found yourself and i'm gonna use a phrase like getting out there more and the reason i ask that is because like i know you're in the improv group, mm -hmm. right like uh, yeah i mean not i'm not this go around i um i started grad school okay. uh, 
so this is the summer is my second semester um so i was in that first go round of it and mm-hmm. i love it so much and i can't wait to try out again um is, is it something that you that you just purely enjoy for what it is or is there like a do you is there a deeper a deeper meaning to it to you that you that you can you can get out there and you can act as yourself but also you're playing you're you're also playing some kind of i don't know i you know maybe i'm just stretching too far with this i honestly no i i think that um there is some deeper meaning to it but it's it's not that one <laughs> it's okay. um it's uh, so a lot of what my personal journey or whatever <laughs> my personal journey or whatever is going to be the name of my right. personal journey or whatever <laughs> or whatever um <laughs> uh has a lot of it has been being able to be in the moment present with myself uh which sounds like there's two of me but what i mean is being comfortable with who i am in this moment and i think that that's been in the early years that was hard for me because i had a lot of feelings and thoughts that i wasn't comfortable acknowledging much less feeling or thinking um and over the years being able to be present and i credit my therapist for a lot of this if you aren't seeing a therapist try it out um but learning to not be scared, for learning to acknowledge that I have feelings and not be scared of them and that thoughts that go through my head, I don't have to identify with them. I can, I can have a thought and say, well, that was an obnoxious thought. That sounds like it echoed somebody else's opinion that I've heard and, but that doesn't have to be me, you know, or whatever. Um, learning to be me and be present and be present with other people too. And that to me is what improv is all about. It's um, being in the moment, what's going on? What am I feeling? What is the other person doing? How can I react to that? And um, be funny in the moment, if preferably. Um, right. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's like a, an exercise in being present, and that's what I like about it, I think. I like that. And, and also, I think there is probably a certain vulnerability of getting out there in front of people. Mm-hmm. And, all, you know, I, I, went, I went to the first one at, at Turntable, you mm-hmm. know, and all eyes are on whatever the two people up there are doing. And yeah. I was like, man, I'm nervous. Like, I'm nervous standing in the back, and I'm not even up there. I was nervous, too, but I was so excited. I was like, my mouth is very dry, <laughs> and I can handle this. <laughs> You, 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 yeah, you should have gotten some water. Our sponsor for this podcast. <laughs> so sponsor. Tap water. <laughs> but no, I think that, you know, I, I, and I think this is, I know this is the first time that we've talked for this long. I know we've communicated over mm-hmm. social media and things like that. I know mm-hmm. we communicated a little bit last summer. But I can say this, like, honestly and truly, like, sitting down and talking to you, like, it, I feel so happy for you you, and that you, you know, that you feel that happiness as well Mm -hmm. for, for getting to this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I do feel like, like I, I used to be scared to go to social things or community gatherings because I, I didn't feel at home and myself and I, it's hard to go out and be around other people when you don't even feel comfortable in your own skin. And now I'm just like, I keep making friends on accident. Like I'll go to turntable on Saturday and drink coffee and talk to people. And I'm like, what, what is this? When did I become social? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, now weird. I don't want to get like, I'm not nosing around. I see a tattoo on your forearm though. Is that, is that, is that your only one? Or you got more? Or you... Oh, I've got several. Oh, so this okay, is, okay. this is my cat. Um, it's awkward to point at things during a well, podcast. Well, po- yes. Imagine a cat on a floor. <laughs> Ima- imagine there's a cat tattoo. And there's also a turtle. Imagine there's a turtle. Um, and this is uh, part of one of my very favorite quotes. Um, it says, listen slowly. Listen slowly, which is the title of a book by Tana Lai. Um, it's a children's book about a little girl that goes to Vietnam with her grandmother because they're from Vietnam. Um, and her grandmother is going to find out if she found some intelligence that maybe her husband was still alive, she thought he'd been killed before they immigrated to um, the United States. And 
do you mind if I grab? I've got the quote written down in my bag. Do you want to hear it? It's so yeah. good. Yeah, All right. So this is the quote. I tell you of loss, my child, so you will listen slowly and know that in life, every emotion is fated to rear itself within your being. Don't judge it proper or ugly. It's simply there or yours. When you should happen to cry, then cry, knowing that just as easily you will laugh again and cry again. Your feelings will enter the currents of your core and there, there they shall remain. I love the quote. Uh, I love the conversation. Uh, I think it's I think it's needed. I think there's so much value in it. I think there's so much value in in you and your story. And I think people people need to hear that. So thank you so much. I know that it's thank you for having me on yeah. here. And I I, I got do I got genuinely appreciate it and appreciate you willing to come on. I I meant it when I said I felt honored when you asked me. So thank you very much.